This is The Guardian. The drip, drip, drip of Tory MPs publicly demanding a change of leader has become a steady stream. So could Boris Johnson be facing a leadership challenge as soon as next week? Former Tory leader William Hague certainly thinks we can't be far off. The fuse is getting closer to the dynamite here and it's speeding up. But the Prime Minister himself evidently isn't going quietly. In an interview with Mumsnet, he ruled out resigning voluntarily over Partygate. I just cannot see how actually it would be responsible right now, given everything that is going on. It looks like Number 10's survival strategy is to warn unhappy Tory MPs that they're doing Labour's dirty work for them. Here's what the ever-loyal Nadine Dorries had to tell the BBC. The public don't vote for divided parties and I don't think we want to do um, both Labour and the SNP's work for them. But in a week where the really big policy announcement was about bringing back imperial measurements, have Boris Johnson's government simply run out of steam? I'm Gabby Hinsliff, standing in for John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. Joining me for this Jubilee Bank Holiday edition are Gavin Barwell, former Conservative MP and Downing Street Chief of Staff to Theresa May, and Peter Walker, Guardian political correspondent. Hello both. Hello. Hi. We are heading into the big Platinum Jubilee weekend this weekend, marking 70 years on the throne for one of the few powers in the land not to have recently faced a police investigation. So <laughs> are you getting the bunting out or, or have you already had enough of what, what someone unforgivably referred to this week on Twitter as the platy jubes? <laughs> How are you feeling about this one, Gavin? Uh, no bunting, but but we'll looking forward to having some friends around and I'm sure watching some of the, some of the TV imagery. You know, I think it is a... It's a hugely historic occasion. I had the, the privilege when I was a government whip of being an officer of the royal household in one of these slightly weird crossovers between politics and the royal family and, and of meeting Her Majesty. And I think, you know, when you think back to the first prime minister she would have dealt with, I think would have been Churchill. Um, it's, an, it's an incredible period of history that she has served through. And, and I think it's right that we, we mark the occasion appropriately. I feel like I should be curtsying to you now as you've actually met her. Peter, what about you? Is it, is it bunting all round at Walker Towers or, or not quite so much? I live in metropolitan south-east London, so there's been a bit of a lack of bunting so far. Who knows? My neighbours might surprise me in the next couple of days. I mean, my, my view is it's, it's kind of crept up on me. I've not really noticed it. You know, I take the kind of guardian cake-and-eat-it rule of the royals that that we you know, are officially Republican and don't like to make a fuss, but we happily accept all the clicks when readers, you know, kind of read our royal stories. I, I've, I've, I've never talked to the Queen, but when I was a press association reporter, we used to do all the royal rota stuff. So I did quite a few duties with uh, her. And my most frightening experience ever as a journalist was once in a very crowded room, I thought I'd knocked her over, but it turned out to be one of the ladies <laughs> in her waiting. But that's a much longer story. You could story have been for shot time. for that, probably. I did genuinely think my career was over. The closest I've ever got to the Queen, apart from involving stamps, was a, a, was a Commonwealth Heads of Government reception where she was over the other side of the room and I couldn't see her because she's so small. You can't see her over the crowd. So that's not a very good story. <laughs> but anyway. anyway, that's enough. God save the Queen. This week, we're going to be discussing whether a vote of no confidence is finally on the horizon for Boris Johnson and what this week's politics of nostalgia tells us about the current Tory state of mind. 
Uh, let's move on to uh, whether Boris Johnson can save himself. Uh, as we um, both know very well, uh, the trigger for a, a formal vote of no confidence by Tory MPs in their leader is 54 MPs submitting a letter to the Backbench 1922 Committee. As of Wednesday afternoon, when we're recording this, we have 18 MPs publicly confirmed as having sent a letter. Another 26 who've questioned his fitness to hold office, but haven't said whether or not they've sent a letter in. And we all know that in previous contests, some MPs have submitted letters without ever publicly saying anything. The only man who really knows how close we are to the threshold then is Graham Brady, the chair of the 1922 committee, and he's not saying anything. So what makes William Haig think the time is nigh? Boris Johnson is in real trouble here, and I think the Sue Gray report has been one of those sort of slow fuse explosions in politics. You know, it's still going along. Uh, A lot of people misread it, really, the events of last week as meaning uh, the the trouble is over, you know, Boris is free. And um, that's actually not the mood in the Conservative Party, which is very, very troubled. Yet officially, the government insists it's business as usual. Here's Dominic Raab on Sky News being asked whether the Prime Minister is likely to face a vote of confidence. No, when I talk to MPs, when I talk to, uh, across the House of Commons about the issues that I'm taking forward, uh, a new victims bill, parole reform, they, they want to see us driving forward that agenda. So what's the truth? What's interesting, I think, about the, the letters and the public criticism, it now seems to be coming from all directions. It's not just people who've never liked Boris Johnson. It's more unpredictable names, too. So Andrea Leadsom, for example, who's an ardent Brexiter, supporter of Johnson's campaign for leadership, has accused him of unacceptable failings of leadership. Peter, is this a, a rigorously organised coup, or are we starting to see something a bit more sort of spontaneous and unpredictable with people chipping in all over the shop? If it is a rigorously organised coup, it's an incredibly badly organised, rigorously organised coup because it's it's kind of no one knows what's going on. But it is, as you say, that the critics are coming from all parts of the party. I mean, it's a bit strange because the numbers are very, very hard to gauge. You know, there's at least two or three MPs that we know of, some of whom have government posts who've quietly said they've put letters in, but obviously can't say so. And it could just be those two or three, or it could be lots more. You know, we could be at anything from 25 to like 46 or even, you know, above the um, above the level, uh, uh, the kind of magic uh, number. But no one really knows. I mean, only Graham Brady knows, which is quite strange. But that really is, you know, the position that we're in now. Gavin, you've been through all this from the inside, really. And Theresa May went through, obviously, her own vote of no confidence. How does it feel inside number 10 trying to get through something like I mean, it's a, it's a very personal public rejection really of a prime minister quite humiliating in some ways what is it like to try and run a government through this sort of sense of siege really i think the waiting is the worst thing i think with Theresa, and i suspect you know the boris's team in number 10 now have got to a point where they know this is almost certainly coming and it's just a question of when and that in a way is the most difficult thing Uh, I can remember there were a couple of people that suggested to Theresa that maybe her supporters should put letters in to kind of bring the thing to a head and have the vote. And she wasn't very keen on that idea. And I suspect if someone suggested it to the current prime minister, he wouldn't be very keen on it either. Once it happens, it's almost galvanising. Then you're, you know, as politicians, then you're into a campaign. Then you know what you know what you've got to do at that point in time. And then when you get the result, uh, you know, I think Theresa won. I think she got just under two thirds of MPs voting for her. Immediately in the moment, it felt great. But actually, the next morning when she and I were sitting in a room together privately, well, you've still had a third of your MPs said they haven't got confidence in you. It's not actually a great thing. And it's very difficult, I think, 
for prime ministers, party leaders to recover authority once you've had one of these votes. And what should, from your experience, what should Number 10 or the Whips be trying to do now if they want to survive this? What is the best strategy for getting through this? Because as you say, you can't sort of stumble on kind of buying off one person here, one person there and hoping for the best. You've got to work out, first of all, clearly what your pitch is to MPs. So if you go back to the the vote of no confidence in Theresa, actually her opponents timed that really badly. If you remember, they triggered it before the first meaningful vote when she was still trying to get improvements to the deal. And actually at a time where if you, if they had won, if there had been a change, the new leader would have had to extend Article 50. So we had some quite strong arguments about why this was a really bad moment to do it. And I suspect Number 10 will be trying to say, you, one of the great things about being in Number 10 is you can always argue it's a really bad moment for a change because there's lots of things going on and it would be really disruptive to change it now, right? And then I think they've also got to make some arguments about how they think the Prime Minister can turn things around. And to me, that's his biggest problem. And then in addition to uh, convincing MPs that he can turn his public standing around, he's still got a lot of patronage. He's the Prime Minister. So there's been some talk of a reshuffle could be coming soon. Projects for individual constituency MPs. You know, there's a whole load of things that Number Ten can do to try and win round individual MPs. So I think, Gabby, you've got to you've got to work on all of those things at once to try and keep the numbers in the right place. Yeah, you mentioned um, the timing of this. I mean, it's it's particularly interesting given Sue Gray's report on Partygate last week was was arguably not as bad for Boris Johnson as it could have been. You know, people were expecting it to be this great sort of terminal smoking gun, and it wasn't. So why are we why are we seeing things moving now? What, what's the tipping point been? I'm going to very slightly disagree with you. I think the Sue Gray report was actually quite bad. I think just the details that there were sixty pages of repeated details of. I mean, there were two aspects to it, one of which was what the staff were up to, was these like vignettes of like spilling wine over photocopiers and being sick in bins and altercations when when, when people were, were, were drunk. And people can very, very clearly contrast that with what they were doing. And MPs are the same because they were kind of making the same sacrifices too. But the sense I got from it too, which was almost the defence that Number 10 managed to produce that got Boris Johnson off most of the fines, you know, when you got fined once, it was this idea of him almost like as a kind of inhabitant of a kind of respite uh, home, being left led from meeting to meeting and handed drinks and told to toast someone. And he didn't really know what anything that was going on. And it was someone kind of in power, but not in charge. If you talk to a dozen MPs, I'll tell you a dozen different things. But I think the sense of what it showed and also the impact it's had on voters was quite a damaging one. Is there a sense also that, that there's a bit more to come out? You know, Partygate, that the grade report did not necessarily draw a line. And when we've had Lord Guide, the sort of independent advisor on the ministerial code coming out saying, you know, actually the Prime Minister should have referred in his explanation to how he squares his fixed penalty fine with the duty under the code to, to obey the law. It doesn't feel as if we've kind of heard the last even of Partygate now. Well, and then there was the changes to the ministerial code, which... You know, you can argue what the changes are, but the impression was of a prime minister trying to preemptively get out of any obligations under that. And there was obviously all the stuff that might potentially come out about other supposed parties in the pretend flat. So this is something that's going to run and run for seemingly months. And then more prosaically, I suppose, as you said, Gavin, you know, people are thinking about their own seats. There was polling published last Friday suggesting there might be such a collapse in the Conservative vote that the Prime Minister would lose his own seat, you know, total wipeout. That's got to focus people's minds a little bit. Yeah. So I think I think if you want the explanation of why 
has this sort of maybe gone quicker than some people were expecting. MPs will have been sending out holding replies saying, I'm not going to comment on this until the Grey Report comes out. So the Grey Report is a kind of a trigger to get off the fence and make the mind up. And then you're right, this big YouGov poll that predicted that of the 88 battleground seats they were looking at, the Conservatives were going to lose 85 of them. That, I think, has really unnerved MPs. And it queues up the Privileges Committee and all of the other stuff on party gates coming along. But it also queues up the, the Tiverton by-election, um, which I think is going to be critical. Uh, if If the Prime Minister can't hold one of the safest Conservative seats in the country that's never been anything other than Conservative and is a Leave-supporting seat, then, you know, there's a lot of MPs sitting there who might think, well, he might not win the next election, but I'll be OK. But if they begin to think, actually, I might not be OK, then that really is going to uh, undermine his position. I was really struck as well by an interview I heard this week with the chair of the Maidstone and Weald Constituency Association, who was saying that what had tipped her over the edge wasn't... It was just that everything seemed to be slightly falling apart, you know, sort of NHS waiting list getting longer, police response not responding to N999 calls fast enough, people waiting weeks for their passports, even even sort of, you know, the chaos we've seen this week, flights being cancelled because airports can't cope. It sort of all feeds this sense, whether or not those are things government is directly responsible for, that, that of sort of general chaos and Conservative voters don't like chaos. Do you think we are sort of discounting to some extent the sort of, you know, just the general ordinary run of events taking its toll on government i think this is very true and it's almost a little bit like kind of late era john major period when it seemed that whatever he or the government did events would just conspire against them and you could very plausibly argue that all the travel chaos you know it really really affects people people don't like it at all but it's caused by potentially the travel industry not planning properly and COVID and then trying to catch up from that and then millions of people deciding this half term, this is their chance to go away. So it's arguably not a government's fault, but you know, once a government gets a reputation for haplessness, then it's incredibly hard to shake it off and everything that does look bad just gets kind of stuck onto them like another kind of post-it note and the impression just gets worse and worse. So supposing, I mean, we still don't know, but supposing that we do hit the 54-letter threshold, just to go through what happens next, we then move on to a vote of no confidence in Parliament, which the rebels would need in 180 votes to win. That's quite a high hurdle. How likely we are, do you you think, to get over that hurdle? Or are we in a sort of no-man's land, potentially, where it's clear people are unhappy, but not that unhappy? Nearly half the parliamentary party is on the payroll. Now, there will be some MPs who are on the payroll. Peter alluded it to, I think, earlier on in the conversation that, that privately might vote against the Prime Minister, but most of them, I think, will feel on a bound to support him. So I think breaching that 180 is quite difficult. And I think one of the problems the Conservative Party's got right now is that it could be left in the worst of all worlds, where you have a vote of confidence, something like 150 MPs vote against the Prime Minister, And whereas most leaders in that situation might recognise the game is up, I suspect this one will not and will carry on. And it's kind of the worst of all worlds. He'd then be very wounded and damaged. His authority would be significantly eroded. Imagine, Gabby, that you had the misfortune to be a Conservative MP and you've gone out and you've said, I've got no confidence in the Prime Minister. How do you tell people to vote for you in that circumstance? Because you're saying re-elect him if they're voting for you. So... I think there's, there's a significant risk that the party's going to find itself. So, you know, some of the people listening to this might think that's all rather amusing and serves Labour's purpose. But from a Conservative point of view, it could find itself in the worst of all worlds where the Prime Minister's kind of limping on, but really badly damaged. 
you wouldn't be able to get anything done. Either. That's the thing that strikes me. I mean, if you're an MP that has publicly voted against your leader, yeah. you know, your your career is toast. You're very much not going to get a ministerial job now. There's nothing in it for you not to just vote against the government whenever it whenever you feel like it, to say what you like. I mean, your your chance as a Prime Minister of getting any difficult legislation through in those circumstances would, would just vanish, presumably. Moving on, uh, on cost of living, Rishi Sunak's big announcement last week was supposed to help the government move on from Partygate. You know, in, in some ways it, it seemed timed to, to allow the government to catch its breath, but it doesn't seem to have done that from what we've just been discussing, giving away money's popular, but it seems some Conservative MPs don't like the way it was done. How has that played into what we've been talking about? I mean, I think the most Conservative MPs are relieved that he has come up with a much better package, that both in terms of its scale and in terms of the focus on helping those who most need it is much better than what he came up with at the Spring Statement. You're onto something there, which is that his problems are not just about Partygate and his standing with the public. I think a lot of MPs feel there isn't any kind of coherent philosophy behind the government. So on some issues, take sending asylum seekers to Rwanda, you know, it's kind of populist right and and MPs on the left of the party feel deeply uncomfortable with that. And then on economics, actually, this is a relatively left-wing Conservative government. It's spending a lot, it's taxing a lot, and the traditional right don't like that. So Almost any MP in the Conservative Party, wherever they sit on the ideological spectrum, has got bits of government policy that they don't like because there isn't any kind of coherent um, philosophical underpinning to what the government's doing, essentially. It's really striking when you think you say that when actually, you know, a year ago we were saying that was Boris Johnson's greatest strength, you know, that he was unpredictable, that he was, you know, left on economics and right on social issues and that's where the country was, you know, and it made it harder for his opponents to oppose him. But it's also made it harder in some senses for them to, to govern, I think. In politics, one of the signs that you're in real trouble is when the things that people used to like about you, they don't like anymore, <laughs> right? You know, he used to, we used to, people used to find him funny, even if they disagreed with him. They don't now. We, we end up turning against our leaders and the things that attracted to them to us in the first place are often the things that we then find great in. Become their kryptonite. Talking of, of, of Rishi Sunak as we were, I mean, three weeks ago, we were all writing off his leadership prospects after he got fined unexpectedly over Partygate. And it emerged that his wife is what's known as a non-dom in that she's not domiciled in the UK for tax. So she doesn't uh, pay tax here on her international earnings. Was it a bit premature of us to um, sort of decide Rishi Sunak was toast at that point, Peter? Could he come back into the uh, reckoning now it looks we, as if we may be heading for a leadership contest? I mean, it might have seemed premature at the time, but three weeks on, it seems to be perfectly accurate. I mean, if you talk to Tory MPs now, he was always the name that got mentioned. You know, they would always have their personal favourites and they say, well, you know, obviously Rishi's got a good chance, etc., etc. But that doesn't happen anymore. And it is quite unusual to see someone's political star fall so quickly. And you could almost argue it shows how kind of politically insubstantial the foundations were. He's completely disappeared now. And that's almost one of the things which makes Boris Johnson in a safer position than he, than he would be. Because if you do get the 180 votes and he goes, then it's almost a roll of the dice. No one can safely predict who might take over. And who knows, for some MPs, that might be the trigger. They might just think, well, you know, it's worth a go because my favourite's got, uh, got a chance. But it would be quite risky. Yeah, you know, I, I rate him quite highly. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan of his. I think he's got 
real ability. The, the civil servants that work with him in the Treasury speak very highly of him. So I wouldn't write him off long term if he really still wants to do this. But I think if there were a vacancy arising in the next few weeks for the reasons we've been discussing, I don't think he's likely to be the winner in a, in a contest in the immediate future. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm in the not writing off camp, I think, in that, in the, I mean, I was at an event he was doing earlier this week and having been sort of spent a few weeks very visibly licking his wounds, he doesn't look to me like someone whose hopes are crushed and he didn't look to me like someone who was, you know, getting ready to <laughs> hightail it off to Silicon Valley and make some money. I wouldn't be surprised, I think, possibly if he chucked it all in and went to America, but I wouldn't be surprised either if he didn't have um, a feeling of, uh, wind in his sails, so to speak. Well, I think you're right. I think it's all about the timing. It's about when it happens and whether or not people have had time to recover their position. But it's interesting to me, part of it, I think, seems to be about, does the Conservative Party have to have a Brexiter next? Is it, does it have to be a true believer? In which case, it's Rishi Sunak, Benny Morden, or Liz Truss. And you could argue about who's the most talented person in that field. But, you know, that's that's the field. Um, but if it doesn't have to be a Brexiter anymore, then, you know, that sort of sort of opens things up. Where would, where's your money? If you had to put your money somewhere, where would it be? Are there any dark horses that we're not thinking about that we should be thinking about? Uh, the three names you said, I think, are, are, are all definite candidates. I probably would add to that list Jeremy Hunt, Nadine Zahawi, Ben Wallace, maybe. Tom Tugendhat, I think those are the kind, that's the sort of circle of names that I would see trying to run. One of the things that I think is interesting is the circumstances in which the vacancy arises. That The longer this drags on, and potentially the more unpopular the government becomes because it's kind of limped on through this chaos, the harder I think it becomes for those who've served as ministers and have backed the PM all the way through. Um, so I think the circumstances in w and the mood of the country at the point at which the vacancy arrives is relevant. And those that haven't been in the government do have a bit of advantage in saying, look, we our only chance at the next election is to draw a very clear line in the sand and feel like a very different government. And it's going to be difficult for people who were trotting out in the broadcast studios every morning defending this to, to achieve that. We'll put that down as a Tom Tugan hat. <laughs> What's interesting about all these candidates, though, is, is, is there, a, there you don't get a sense of the new ideas here, the sort of change of direction for the party that, that, that they would they would instigate. And it's it's big ideas that the current government seems to be lacking. But anyway, let's pause here for a minute. And up next, we'll be talking about why the government seemingly wants to take us back to the 1950s. We've had a week of nostalgia politics, time to coincide with the Jubilee, with the government announcing the return of crowns being printed on pint glasses and promising once again to allow shops to sell products measured out in pounds and ounces instead of in metric grams and kilos. Gavin, is anyone really desperate for the return of, of pounds and ounces to people like stop you in the street saying, why, why can't we talk feet and inches? Why does government keep wheeling this one out over and over again? I have no idea. I've never, ever, in the seven years as an MP, nobody has ever, ever raised this issue with me. And I think the government looks completely absurd for raising it. I mean, the, we don't need politicians to tell us what units to use. We, we have this kind of slightly weird thing in this country where we use imperial things for some stuff and metric for others. 
we get along perfectly fine. The idea that what we really need from our politicians at the moment is telling us which, which units to use for what things is absurd. The real agenda, where the Conservative Party really needs to think, is that having taken this decision to take us out of the EU and having delivered quite a hard Brexit, not one that I personally liked, but it's done, the real issue it needs to be thinking about is the long-term growth agenda for this country. If you look at the Bank of England's forecasts, they offer anemic growth, just over 1%. And that is going to cause huge political problems in terms of the affordability of public services uh, and the levels of tax that we're going to need for the services we require. That's where the Conservative Party's intellectual energy should be, not on not on nonsense like this. Bringing back feet and inches. Yeah, Peter, you wrote this week about the, the rumoured return of, of grammar schools, which is another throwback to the past, but one in some ways with more, more serious consequences. What do you think is going on there? My, my my entirely personal theory, which Gavin can probably tell me if it's completely untrue, is that a kind of good gauge for how kind of embattled the Conservative government is, is how tempted they are to listen to backbenchers and decide to bring grammar schools back. Because grammar schools are this weird thing that they're incredibly popular with some Conservative MPs. And you have this system where some parts of the country uh, have got them. But all the evidence does show, and for decades it has shown, that if you want to improve the kind of social chances of kids from poor backgrounds, then they don't work. They do exactly the opposite of what they're meant to do. And and the polling's quite interesting too, that, that, that you know, when you poll about grammar schools, it seems to be almost entirely split three ways between bring them back, keep the system as we've got, or get rid of the ones that we've got now. And, and the polling's also interesting that if you ask people if they want grammar schools, uh, their answer is very heavily shaped on whether or not they think their own kids would get in. So it's a very, very strange thing. And, and you know, it's quite... But where's it, where's it coming from now? Why has it come back in this week? I mean, there was a story in The Telegraph earlier in the week sort of vaguely suggesting this might be floating around in the ether. But how serious do you think that is? I think it's just a distraction tactic. Even The Telegraph story said ministers are keen on the idea, but Department for Education, civil servants, you know, are warning against it. And they're warning against it because it's a rubbish idea which comes up again and again. And they get told again and again, it's not going to solve the things you think it will. So I think this was very much, it could be a minister who likes them, who's just trying to float the idea, or it could just be a number 10 distraction tactic. You know, you can't really tell. Is there a political usefulness to nostalgia politics? And so I'm going to just think people who feels nostalgic. It's basically people who were young in the area that we're being told to be nostalgic about. I mean, it's basically, to be blunt, older people who like looking back. And we have an ageing population and the Conservative Party has quite an elderly base. I mean, is, is nostalgia useful for it in that sense? The, the Conservative Party is always at its best when it's clear what are the things that need protecting and what are the things that actually are unjust or wrong in our society where reform is required. But if it's just, you know, actually Britain was better in the 1950s and we should go back to how everything was then, well, that's patently not true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think what I find frustrating about all these nostalgia trips is it feels as if nobody's got anything to say about the challenges of the future, which, as you said, you know, economic growth is one of them. The way technology is changing work is another one of them. Demographic challenges, all sorts of things. And it's as if all of that was kind of too scary and difficult. So we've retreated back into solving problems that don't exist because at least that's sort of easy. <laughs> and the odd thing is, I mean, that ought in theory to be a gift to the opposition. You know, if the government hasn't got any ideas, great. You know, we look to the opposition for all their energy and all the creative sort of thinking but beyond the sort of incredibly successful as it turns out idea of a, a windfall tax on oil and gas companies I'm not sort of 100% clear what, what Labour's big idea either although we heard this week Peter that Keir Starmer's writing a book about his own big ideas is that going to enlighten us do you think as to a whole load of creative thinking that we've somehow been missing till now or? 
the best gauge of that is probably that long form essay stroke manifesto that um, Keir Starmer wrote. I can't remember when, about six months ago. And I, I read it because I had to read it to see if there any kind of like news lines in it, as journalists always do. So I read it very thoroughly and very carefully. And I cannot remember a single thing about it now. And and I think Keir Starmer has many virtues as a Labour leader, but setting out big ideas thus far, you know, he could get better at it, has not been one of the most prominent ones. And who knows, this book could surprise us all. It could be a Barack Obama-style eloquent vision of the future. And, you know, I believe he does have ideas. There is definitely a vacuum there when you talk to voters. I mean, when you go out on doorsteps and talk to voters, when Labour comes up, the thing that is often said is like, yeah, Keith Thomas seems like a nice man. I don't really know what he stands for. So that's a vacuum they have to fill. I thought well fashioned enough to think that's what a manifesto was, was like <laughs> a list of what you were going to do in government. But anyway, I mean, it's the problem, I suppose, partly, Gavin, isn't it? Labour had one brilliant idea, which was the windfall tax, and the government stole it. And now it's kind of now what really it's like tumbleweed where where the the rest of it should be yes yeah, so i think i think their experience over uh, the windfall tax is an example of how difficult opposition is because when you win and you actually force the government to take your policy actually it does the government political good rather than you but i'm going to say something really controversial that virtually all the mps i served with would hate me for saying there's not a lot of difference between the two parties at the moment you, you couldn't get you couldn't get two leaders who are more different than Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer in temperament and style. But if you think about the big challenges facing our country, you know, um, the size of the state, keeping the UK together, our relationship with Europe, levelling up, decarbonisation, on those big questions, there isn't a huge difference between what a Labour government and a Conservative government do. And it's kind of heresy for me to say that because the politicians like to pretend there are there are profound differences. I said, that's a very Corbynite position you're taking there, actually, that there's no <laughs> difference between... <laughs> we, all <laughs> we all come around in the end, it turns out, full circle. Um, Tony Blair's planning a, a conference uh, later this month, and you know, I'll leave space for you to groan there if you want to, or cheer, um, but, which is being billed as an attempt to fill the uh, gaping hole in British politics with big new centrist ideas about, I think, climate change is one thing they're looking at, uh, technology is another, moving on from Brexit to whatever, comes after it is is tony blair trying to be super helpful here do we think or, or is this potentially uh more of a threat to him maybe blair does this not because he's thinking it's helpful or not helpful just because no one else is really doing it i mean the big two parties are not really addressing and these are the things that gavin mentioned uh, earlier these big challenges in you know the way we move forward the changing of work the environment, there's going to be a huge amount, very, very big changes in the next kind of few decades. But we're still talking of things which are maybe four or five years in the future at the very most. And, you know, it, tradition used to be the smaller parties that did that. The kind of usual kind of way that green policies went was that they were initially laughed at and then they were looked at and then Labour would take them on. Then eventually the Tories would take them on. And it's been things like, you know, things like the four day week and then things like the national living wage. I mean, they're not quite there yet, but people are trying to think about them. I don't know if I can put myself into the, you know, silvery mulleted head of Tony Blair. It could just be that he's frustrated that these big ideas are not being thought about. So he wants to try and do something. So maybe he does think he is contributing to the debate. And, you know, he might possibly be doing that. It does feel a bit to me as if it reflects, you know, there is a deep scepticism, it's fair to say, among some on the sort of old, what you would call the old right of the Labour Party, that, that 
Keir Starmer can win the next election. And it, 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 there is a lot of talk about coming up with ideas that the next Labour leader could use if if Starmer doesn't win. But maybe I am being far too far too <laughs> cynical about all of this. But it does it, it brings me to something one of the more unexpected developments of the week, I suppose, which is um, whether that sort of transition between Labour leaders could be a little bit closer than we think. It did emerge this week that Durham Police have sent questionnaires to both Keir Starmer and Angela Rayner over um, what's become known as Beergate, the not very scandalous scandal of having a takeaway on the campaign trail. It does suggest, doesn't it, Peter, that the police aren't completely dismissing these allegations out of hand. What what should we make of those questionnaires coming out and what do you think Labour MPs are making of that? It's a strange one because when Durham Police said they had received, quote, significant new evidence and we're going to look at it, to an extent that bar was already crossed. It seemed very likely like the questionnaires would be sent in. Given what happened with Boris Johnson's fines and the fact that he was able to argue a very, very broad definition of what was necessary for work purposes. If you take that metric, it would be astonishingly surprising if Keir Starmer and Angela Rayner were fined or penalised in any way for what they did, because what they did was, A, it's a kind of different and less stringent period of lockdown, and B, it was much more obviously within what was permitted by work. There was a very specific exemption for campaigning purposes, because we were about to have the Uh, by-election and the local uh, uh, elections. But the strange thing about the COVID rules is that they've not been tested by courts, they've not been tested by higher courts, and they're this peculiar mixture of this incredibly politically significant thing, but which is being done on a judicially incredibly low level. It's the police that look into it, and they decide whether or not to issue the fixed penalty notices. And a court only gets involved if someone decides to challenge that. And we have no way of knowing if Durham police will think the same way as the Metropolitan Police did. So, I mean, if I had to guess, I would say they're going to be fine. But stranger things have happened in terms of just kind of COVID rules. Um, I'd be I'd be a bit more sceptical than Peter about the likelihood of, of Starmer getting, getting off completely. Um, I mean, look, it's very difficult because neither Durham police nor the Met have covered themselves in glory in terms of transparency behind their decision-making processes, both initially said they weren't going to look into these things, then they did. Um, they're in a difficult position, obviously, given the given the given what's riding on it in terms of political stakes. But you, you've got to at least argue that the number of people that were at that event, it's questionable, I think. So I certainly think it is possible. Maybe it's more likely than not that he won't be fine, but I certainly think it's possible that he will. To me, if I were a if I were a politics teacher set, choosing an essay for my set, you know, it's quite an interesting question. Would it be a good or bad thing for Labour if he is fined? Is quite an interesting question to to think about. We always like to be of assistance to A level teachers on this on this on this podcast. What's odd about all this is that a Platinum Jubilee weekend is meant to be about constancy. It's the stability provided by having the same Queen for 70 years, even if, obviously, for some people, the idea of of an unelected monarch is anathema in itself. But actually, we we may be approaching a time of real and unprecedented instability. The Queen's 96 and not in the best of health. Boris Johnson is in a pretty perilous place. and, And even the leader of the opposition's position isn't totally secure. So we could potentially in the next few months see a prime minister facing attempts to oust him at the same time as a looming royal succession and and real questions over the future survival of the monarchy itself, I guess, under Prince Charles. I don't want to put anyone off their Victoria sponge this weekend, but let's just say we live in interesting times. 
But anyway, thank you so much, Peter and Gavin, for helping us make sense of these very confusing times. Goodbye, Peter. Goodbye, Gavin. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Goodbye. John will be back next week. But in the meantime, thank you all for listening. Uh, this episode was produced by Natalie Katena. Music by Axel Kakutier. The executive producers are Danielle Stevens, Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian.